G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey and welcome to I'm Loving Your Work. Today on the show, we have the final part of my chat with Chris Appleford. After hearing more specifically about his time at the Melbourne Storm last week, we will be learning about what else Chris has done to get to this point of a successfully well-varied career. Chris is a great example of someone who puts himself out there, and this week we'll be hearing more about Chris's dynamic career path. I hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Chris Appleford. Did you go through any other sort of education before you got to those stages in terms of, I imagine if, you know, not having written articles and that before, it'd be quite hard sort of just off the bat be able to do that. Did you, yeah, did you do anything else to kind of help you gain the skills to be able to put yourself in a position to say, all right, this is what I can offer you? Not really. I was a primary school teacher and then I had a master's of sports management qualification and I had a connection. And so they gave me... They gave me the job, and then from there it was just about just repetition, you know. I, I can't remember it, but if I had a look back at my very first ever press release, it's probably horrible. Uh, and the second one probably is just that little bit less horrible, and the third one's just that little bit less horrible again. <laughs> and then, you know, journos will call you up and they'll go, hey, I you know, you've missed this in your press release or, you know, how do I, you know, there's no contact details in here or what does this mean? And so, again, the next press release I do, I'd include whatever they've said I've missed out on or, you know, whatever it might be. And um, so you just learn on the job and it's okay to suck when you start because nobody expects you to be brilliant when you start. You know, and if they do, then their expectations are too high. You're not going to be great at what you do on your very first day. But your second day will be better, your third day will be better, and then you just carry on. And if you've got somebody on staff who is supportive, so generally when you go to an organisation, you'll be entry level and you'll have a manager. And so if that manager is any good, they will ensure that you get better, whether that's looking after you themselves or making sure that you get properly trained or whatever it might be. Unfortunately, I didn't really have that at the storm. The media manager left after four months and then I was made the media manager and there was no assistant given to me. So I was kind of left to my own device. So there's an office we'll see in three years and that was kind of kind of how it was. But I liked it because that's how I like working. Do you have any tips for making yourself appear you know as employable as possible in those situations where you do sort of get a chance to meet someone and and put yourself across in that way what are some things that that you consider to be important when having that opportunity to kind of sell yourself in those situations i guess you need to be prepared so what i've learned recently and i'm 43 now and i've really only just learned this is that now that i'm going out on my own with what i'm my projects that I'm starting to do, I've done a few courses, I've spoken to a few people who have done it, and every one of them says the same thing. When somebody asks you who you are, what you do, you need to have your 30-second elevator pitch ready to go. And it needs to, if you can't tell them exactly what you do in that 30-second pitch, then you've lost them. So if you're umming and ahhing, or if what you say is a bit vague, or... um, or you don't come across well, then you're going to lose them. So, yeah, so what what sort of things would you include in that 
about sort of like work experience and, and what your best qualities are and yeah, how, how do you sort of balance what you actually say to someone in that situation? So just make sure that you can succinctly tell them who you are. Mm. So not even, hi, my name's Chris, I've got a Master's of Sports Management degree, can I have a job at Melbourne Storm? You know, more like, hey, my name's Chris, I'm very interested in working in professional sport, I have a keen interest in the media side of things. Um, I've worked for Ian Hansen Sports Media and I have a Master's of Sports Management degree. Can I talk to you a bit more about it? You know, you've got, really got to nail it mm. um, and you've really got to sell yourself and you've got to come across as somebody who is personable, who knows what they're talking about, who doesn't need their hand held every step of the way. You've got to be confident and if you're not confident or if you you know, you're a bit timid, then you're going to struggle. Because if you want to work in professional sport, for example, sport is very, very social. So if you're in a room and can't talk to anyone, how do you expect to get anywhere? Mm. So you need to open yourself up. And again, it's the same thing. I've got a good friend of mine, um, Craig Harper, excise scientist, but he's right into the mindset and... Um, again, taking your life from point A to point B and how you get there and how, yes, it's going to be difficult, yes, it's going to be uncomfortable getting out of your comfort zone, but if you want to go to where you want to go, that's what you've got to do. And his thing is, if you, are, if you, are, if you struggle with talking to somebody who you don't know, um, go and do it once, battle through it, and then... Do it again. You may suck again, but you'll suck a little less than you did last time and it'll feel a slightly more comfortable than it did last time. And then do it again and you'll suck a little bit less and it'll be a little bit more comfortable and so on and so on until you can it's till it comes natural to you. But you've just got to understand that to go from where you are to where you want to be, life is going to get a little bit uncomfortable for you and you need to accept that, embrace it and move on with it. And so you've worked for quite an array of, of top sporting bodies in Australia. Um, what are some of the differences between the ways that they conduct themselves? Melbourne Storm was uh, incredibly family-oriented. So everybody was made to feel comfortable and a part of the process of winning premierships, which is what sport is, right across the board. So no matter what department you worked in, no matter who you were, whether you were Cameron Smith, captain of Australia, captain of Queensland, captain of the Melbourne Storm, or the girl that worked on the front desk, you were all made to feel as though you played a part in getting the Melbourne Storm to where they were going, which was awesome. And it meant that there was certainly for a period there pre the salary cap scandal, that very few people left. The attrition rate was so small. I left there and went to Cricket Australia and worked as their digital guy for the first season of the Big Bash League. Very, very different organisation. Very traditional. Um, much bigger. Um, the, the chain of command, the hierarchy was much different. Whereas at the Storm... I had a, a general manager as my manager. 
there was no issue with me just walking straight into the CEO's office and having a chat because Brian and I had that kind of relationship. I, I couldn't walk into the CEO of the Cricket Australia's office if I wanted, you know, I'd have to go to my manager who would then go to their manager and there'd be a chain of events. Um, and even though I was sitting behind a desk, not facing anybody, not seeing anybody from the public, I had to wear a suit and tie. Like it was formal. Um, but on the on the other side, incredibly supportive organisation of professional development. Mm. They will go out of their way and bend over backwards to make sure that you become, you leave Cricket Australia a much better employee than when you arrived. So, you know, if you wanted to go from where you were to where you wanted to be and there was some courses you wanted to do, Cricket Australia will support you all the way. They also put on courses that you were um, that you had to attend. So again, professional development was a huge focus for Cricket Australia, and from that point of view, it was amazing. The Melbourne Rebels, I moved there as their, to be their GM of communications. Again, very different, very very different organisation. It was new; it had only been up and running for a few years by that stage. And so there were still a lot of um, a lot of kinks being ironed out, and as such, it was quite tumultuous. It was a small staff um, with staff doing a uh, wearing a lot of hats. They'd be multi-skilled across a number of areas. Whereas in Cricket Australia, there was no issue with staff, so you had your role and you, that's what you did. Also, at Melbourne Storm, to a certain degree, and cricket. Absolutely, money wasn't really an object. At the Rebels, it was a huge object. And so what you could do was very much limited. So it was it was a difficult time working at the Melbourne Rebels. It was hard work because it was a young organisation still trying to find its feet. And so having worked um, with the Rebels kind of in their infancy and obviously the early stages of the Big Bash, during that time, do you sort of... Do you sort of have an idea of, of where you want things to go in terms of like the Big Bash, for example, in the last what is it six years or so has just gone gangbusters. It's really become kind of a staple of the Australian summer, both the men's and the women's game, I think. Um, do you get a sense of that at the time or are you very much sort of running things on maybe like a one to three year sort of plan rather than looking yeah i don't think anyone could have quite predicted how big the big bash league would come uh, will become i mean it's it's enormous the the average gates four of the eight teams sell out every game you know you get 75 80,000 to a stars renegades game it's it's enormous and it's only going to get bigger particularly when they expand with you know a couple of extra clubs coming in in the next couple of years. I assume that's the the next step for the Big Bash League. So no one could have predicted it, um, but it's been a real joy to watch the Big Bash League grow like it has. Um, with the Rebels, I think you're always looking to grow, but you can only grow so much in having a rugby club in an AFL town. I think that they've got their their crowd of around 15,000 to a game, maybe a few less. And I think that's probably where they are. 
and I think that they I don't think they'll ever be a super rugby powerhouse um, because you've got the Brumbies and the Waratahs and the Reds who are the big teams in Australia and even they struggle in the super rugby competition to win competitions on a regular basis. So um, if you're a rugby player, are you going to come and want to play in Melbourne or are you going to want to go and play in Sydney or Brisbane? And so money would talk in those situations. So you'd get your big name players to Melbourne, but it wouldn't have to be because you're paying overs for them. That's my guess. Mm. So I think the Rebels will, um, will always be in Melbourne. I think there'll always be a Super Rugby team here. I don't think you can have a... I think the Melbourne market is such that you've got to have a club here for TV uh, money, if nothing else, to have that national um, footprint. But I think that they're certainly not going to fill out Amy Park anytime soon. After sort of working for a period of time obviously in sport across the field in many different ways you went traveling and, and yeah. packed up your family for for a couple of years tell us about that so what led to that decision oh wow it was amazing i mean even thinking about it now i just want to go home pack my bags and go again it was just such an incredible experience so yeah it was around 2012 i think um Maybe, no, maybe 2013. I'd done some work for Etihad Stadium for about 14 months. I, they got me in to, be a, to start up their social media platforms, write out their, um, their strategy document, start up their social media platforms, and then administer them at events. So I did that for 14 months, and that was pretty cool. But by, that, by the end of that stage, and in that time, I'd also started my own little business called Hot Chucky, which was a home-based drinking chocolate powder business <laughs> that we that we sold that we just formulated ourselves we come up with the formula myself and my wife did a little bit of the design work and we just packaged it up into jars and bags and sold it at markets and we we're at about 35 40 shops across australia by the time we sold it so um so it was good fun we sold a bit online and then uh so we decided that we didn't want to have a retail business I was kind of treading water with what I was doing. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. Sarah, I was 39, 40 by this stage, 40. Sarah had been working for a landscape design firm for about six years by that stage. It wasn't what she wanted to do for the rest of her life, um, but the people she worked for were fantastic. And so one night over the dinner table, I just said, do you fancy just quitting everything we're doing, selling everything we own and just put everything in a backpack and go travelling uh, indefinitely? So Sarah was studying at the time. She's doing a natural science degree, majoring in nutrition. And we had Jack, who was about, at that stage when we had that conversation, about 18 months old. So anyway, it didn't take much to convince Sarah. She was in. Um, so that set the ball rolling and we told everyone that we were heading off, she quit, we sold everything, and in, then in April of 2013, April of 2014, sorry, we flew to Vietnam, and we just started our travels. Yeah. And while we were travelling, uh, we knew we had to make some money while we were travelling, we didn't have enough, you know, we sold our business, but you're not going to make much money, it's a little market-based business, um, little farmer's market-based business, and 
we, we had some savings and then we sold our stuff. So we had a little bit of money in the bank, which kept us going for a few months, but we had to work. So we started, I started teaching English to primary school kids in Thailand. We stayed there for a couple of months. And so Sarah was sitting at, in our little apartment that we'd rented and was kind of twiddling her thumbs wondering what to do. So she got online and created a profile on Upwork, online freelancing website, and started writing articles for people's websites. And that, and then when we left Thailand and we travelled through India for a bit and then we settled in the United Arab Emirates for a month, I did the same thing. Started writing articles for people's websites. And from that, well, that grew big time. Um, to the point where we still do it now and we charge much, much more than we charged back then. And uh, Sarah does that as a part-time job while she's studying and I've been doing it as a 50% kind of job until very recently when I decided to cut all ties with my clients because I want to move forward on the projects that I'm moving on with now. But... Going back to the whole travelling side of it, I just loved almost every second of it. It was amazing. Travelled through Southeast Asia and India, the United Arab Emirates, and then quite a bit of Europe. Lived in France for eight months, six months, um, and then flew home. It was amazing. I recommend it to everybody. Everybody. Just go travelling. Mm-hmm. And so you managed a, a travel blog through that time, the, yeah. the Travelling Apples. Yep, travellingapples.com. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what were some of the challenges that came with that? Well, it's time-consuming. Mm. That's the main challenge. So we started the website before we left. Um, you know, we got it up and running. We, we wanted it to look good, so it took us a bit of time. Neither of us were programmers, so we're kind of teaching ourselves along the way how to start up a WordPress website and make it look good with a premium theme and you know, widgets and categories and pages and posts and anyone who knows about setting up a WordPress website knows all about those sorts of things, So, especially when you have never, ever done it before. So that was quite um, quite a challenge. But then you go to, you're out sightseeing and part of you is wanting to enjoy the fact that you're in a new country and you're um, experiencing new things, meeting new people, but there's a little bit inside you that's like, okay, I've got to take notes or I've got to take a photo of that because I've got a website that I'm running now and I've got to um, I've got to allow a couple of hours later tonight to write the article and edit the images and post them to my website. So it's time-consuming. And if we didn't have a website, um, the travel probably would have been a, a little less stressful which means it would have been a little bit more enjoyable. But now we've got this constant record of our mm. travels. And I go back to it occasionally every now and then and just read a story about what... Because you forget a lot of your stuff you've done. So you go back and read, oh, yeah, that's right. I remember that time in Salzburg. And, oh, wow, yeah, that town in the Czech Republic. How cool, you know. So um, from that point of view, I'd highly, highly recommend that people start a little blog of their own or keep a journal or something just so that they've got those memories. I mean, we probably get about – we don't do anything on it now. We haven't written an article for it, updated it in over a year, and we probably get around about 10,000 unique visitors to the website each month. Wow. So it just kind of grows organically. You know, yeah. we've got – well, we 
we see travel blogs out there that make money with around about 20,000 20, uniques, 25,000 uniques a month. We'll, we'll get you to the point where you can start making a little bit of money out of your blog, which helps your travels. Um, then you start getting bigger. and So the, again, like anything in life, consistency is the key. You know, When you start a job, you're going to suck, but if you consistently try, consistently do the work, you'll consistently get better. Um, if you struggle to talk to people who you've never met before and don't know, consistently improve, consistently introduce yourself to people you don't know and talk to them and you'll consistently get better and better and better until you, you know, it's the same thing with running a website. If you're consistent, you're consistently posting good quality information and you're consistently promoting that um, via social media channels and a number of other ways that you can promote your material, then you'll consistently get more and more people to your website and then you can start making money. But um, it takes time and it takes hard work and it takes patience. And so with that, was there was there kind of one period where you kind of went, whoa, this has really taken off in the last you know month or so? Or was it kind of a, a slow build-up um, to, to, yeah, like that's quite, quite an amount of unique viewers? It's good. Yeah, so I don't know whether there was a... A, a particular moment in time, but it was. There are a couple of articles that we've written that um, that are by far and away the most popular. So I wrote an article while I was living in the United. So when I was living in the UAE for that one month, we were thinking about staying for a year because you can earn good money as a, as a school teacher there. So I'd started applying. For, well, not, not even applying for jobs, just reaching out to schools. There was about three weeks to go before the school year started. So I just started reaching out to schools, sending emails in, hey, I'm, I'm here. Mm-hmm. If you've had a teacher drop out or you've, you know, something's happened, I'd love to come and talk to you about the opportunity of potentially teaching here and, and sent my CV. Anyway, after about a week, I had two job offers because A, um, Teachers that they thought they had from Australia, England, America, wherever it might be, coming all of a sudden get cold feet and drop out, or the school has had um, more enrolments than they had planned for, so they need another teacher to teach another class. And so, yeah, I had two offers. The offers were good. One was much better than the other one. You know, one was the good one was a good wage. They would pay for our apartment. They give you a what's called a furniture allowance, which is about $6,000 to furnish your apartment. Um, they fly you back to your home country after every 12 months. Um, free in, uh, medical insurance, that sort of stuff. So it was, it was a good deal. But we decided to reject it because I didn't like being a school teacher and so it just would have meant being unhappy in my job in a different country and that's not why we went traveling so anyway I wrote an article about how easy it is to get offered jobs in the UAE um, because everyone thinks it's really difficult and it is difficult um, if you go about it in the traditional way which is stay at home send your CVs into an agency they look at your CV and go, no, you're not up to this, you know, because it's there's it's high competition because they pay so well and there's so many great benefits. But if you do it my way, 
or the way I accidentally fell into it. It certainly wasn't by design. I was there already. It was a few weeks before the school year started. Some schools were scratching around for a teacher going, geez, where, where can we find someone at short notice? Here I am. You know, so it was kind of like um, the stars aligning. And so I wrote an article about it. Anyway, that article just went gangbusters. And I would get five people a week from somewhere in the world asking me for advice on how to get a job in the UAE. I could start up my own teaching agency, I reckon. I get, you know, (laughs) but uh, I just say, go and read the article. That's where you know, everything I know I've put in that article. Yeah. But I get, I get lots of people asking for my advice on how to get... So that's that one's gone gangbusters. So as long as you can... So I guess the secret is if you can get two or three articles that go nuts. So we've probably written... We would have written 150 articles for Travelling Apples and we've got three quarters of our visitors come from probably three of the articles. So that's what you need, articles that go nuts. Mm. And the other thing is that I we wrote... Or I wrote articles for a couple of massive websites with links back to Travelling Apples. So news.com.au, I wrote an article, um, sends plenty of traffic. And problogger.net, I wrote an article for them. And uh, it was quite a controversial article. It was about why you should not start a travel blog. <laughs> and uh, anyway, there was uproar, you know, the travel bloggers out there getting defensive, you know. It was just a... An article about the pitfalls, you know. The, the headline was a bit of a bit of clickbait to get people to get people click through, and then people got up in arms about it. But the, but that was great. Like that's exactly the desired result. You get some people up in arms. You get ha- the other half defending you, and then there's a, this chat about it, and then people actually go to it, and then you've got these links from big popular websites to your website and so google thinks yeah this website's pretty cool and up, up up the chain of um or up the search engine results you go so um yeah be consistent and so that of of course well, i imagine you got a bit of a love for for writing and managing a website yep. and that sort of thing and led you to datology tell us a little bit about that yeah so datology is something that i um sort of had brewing uh, well, I did, actually, that's not true. I didn't have a brewing, but I had this idea that when I came back from my travelling, let's go back a step. I went travelling because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I figured that if I just let go of everything and went travelling, that maybe I would discover what I wanted to do. And it didn't quite work out like that, but I kind of knew that I wanted to do something where... I helped people in some way. Very vague, you know, cliched. Everyone wants to help people, I guess. Most people. And so I was kind of racking my brain what I wanted to do. And it wasn't until I got back where I thought, well, I'm I'm pretty into my health and fitness. You know, I like going to the gym. I like eating the right foods. I like doing that sort of stuff. I like taking care of myself. So, well, I might be a, pe- a personal trainer. I'm going to help people. Uh, I'm going to help people get in shape. So that's what I did. I went and did a course, got a diploma of fitness, and then uh, and then I've started working as a personal trainer here in Geelong, which is great. It's been excellent. But then I kind of I, I'm also an online person. I've been in the online space for a long time. Websites, digital media, 
And so I wanted to kind of figure out how I could combine the two. And so I went to this seminar that my mate Craig was talking at, which had five guest speakers across the day. And it was awesome. So good. I encourage people to go to, you know, if you have a real interest, a professional interest, a personal interest, whatever it might be, and you find seminars with quality people talking at them, go. Anyway, there was a guy there called Lynn Trin, who is an online personal trainer which kind of seems a little bit weird. How can you be an online personal trainer? But it's definitely, um, it's definitely possible, and it's a really positive thing. So anyway, I kind of met him. I introduced myself to him. How We had a bit of a chat, and then I went and did a one-day workshop with him um, to try and figure out what I wanted to do with my interests, personal training, digital, being a dad, all this sort of stuff, and boil it down into a real focus of where I wanted to go next. And this is where Dadology was born. So initially it was like, let's do personal training for dads online. And then as Lynn sort of drilled down a little bit more into my motivations, it got a bit deeper and holistic than that. And so it became, well, I just... I don't just want to help dads be in shape. I want to help them be the best dad that they can possibly be. How can I do that? I'm, I'm, I don't have the qualifications to do that. So I just thought, well, I'll start talking to people who are qualified. And I started making a list of all of the pain points that dads have, you know, their financial issues, um, relationships with their partner, relationships with their kids, um, depression, um, nutrition and fitness, of course, and a whole range of other areas. And so I started reaching out to experts in those fields, asking if I could come and film them, talking about different, different aspects. And so I reached out to these guys and most of them said no. And some of them said yes. And that's what you're going to find when you become, uh, I don't know whether entrepreneur is the right word, but when you go out on your own and you do your own thing, is that you need to, for every 20 requests you send out there, you may get one or two positive ones in return. And if you're thin-skinned and don't like rejection, then you're not going to get very far. So I went and filmed... These people, some of uh, Craig Harper again, my mate Craig. He's uh, we did a whole range of videos with him on mindset. I reached out to a naturopath, a life coach, a clinical psychologist, um, a nutritionist, a whole range of experts in their field to create a series of videos with each of them that would focus on one issue that they face and provide one solution. So the journey continues. Um, at the moment, I'm probably halfway through the project. I'd still like to find five or six more experts to talk about or to share their knowledge, to share their um, solutions to these problems that dads face, and then I'll launch it. And hopefully... Um, Dads can come along, sign up, 
and get a, get some advice on some areas of their life that they might be struggling in or can't find solutions for or need some help with and make some changes in their life that make them a better dad, a better husband, a better partner, a better father, a better role model. So if you were to look ahead for, for a couple of years now, where, where do you see things heading, uh, yeah, let's say in the next 10 years, looking kind of okay. f- f- further forward than... I suppose one of the themes that's kind of emerged from this yeah, these interviews that I've done so far is that there's so much opportunity to put yourself out there in many ways at the moment, and it's sort of... Some some people just have the knack of sort of making it stick with mm-hmm. certain things, and and others sort of yeah I suppose kind of jump around from Plot one along. thing to another. Um, do you see dadology as something that's you know could potentially be a, like a full time job, or are you someone who uh, likes to have your finger in a couple of pies sort of at different times and that sort of thing? Well, I have two focuses at the moment. One is dadology, and one is chrisappleford.com. So Dadology is what we've just discussed and chrisappleford.com is personal training for dads. So people who need a bit more focus, uh, need a lot more support, who really want someone there every step of the way to give them training programs that progress from where they started um, and and really benefits them from a physiological point of view. Uh, But they also need help with their nutrition. They also need their help with the the mindset side of things. So it's not easy for someone to go to the gym who isn't used to going to the gym. It can be an intimidating sort of place. They don't know what they're doing. They're wondering if people are watching them. Um, Are they doing things right? Are people laughing at them behind their backs? It's, It's a, it's a, it can be an intimidating place. So um, so they're my two focuses at the moment, and I want to get those up and running in the next two months. That's the plan. Where they take me over the next few years, I don't know, because how fast is, how fast is everything changing? I mean, it was only... I mean, when I started at the Melbourne Storm in 2005, there was no such thing as Facebook, mm. you know? There was no <laughs> – now you can just bang everything up on YouTube and people can watch it. Mm. Um, now you can do a podcast into your laptop and load it up and people can listen to you. Mm. I don't know what the next thing – I don't know what the next thing is. So um, it's a matter of starting, even if it's not perfect when you start – and this is what I've only just started learning and really only just started getting my head around is the fact that it's okay to launch something that is not perfect. People understand that it's not going to be perfect. You know, and you'll, you'll be constantly updating and constantly getting better and constantly improving. And those who are with you from the start will benefit from all of those changes and will be, you know, They'll be your biggest cheerleaders. And then people who come on at a later date will um, will be getting the benefit of all of those improvements that you've made. So I used to think that it had to be, if I was going to launch something, every duck had to be in, in, the, in, the, row, in the right row. 
All of your ducks had to be in a row before you get up and running. But what I've since discovered from people who have launched online businesses and are very successful is that your first product is probably going to suck. (laughs) And then, maybe not suck, but it's not going to be perfect. And you will continue to make improvements forever. Because that's how... That's how it works. And if you're not improving, then you're going backwards and someone's going to go past you. So, and the only way you learn is by actually launching something and then figuring out from feedback or whatever it might be what is wrong and then making improvements and going again. So, I've burnt my boats as the Vikings used to do. I've I don't have a job now. I've told all my clients that I don't work for them anymore. Um, I still do my personal training because that keeps me in the game in that side of things, which I do part-time. But I now have to do this. I now have to get Dadology up and running. I have to get chrisappleford.com up and running, and I have to get it up and running soon, and I have to start selling people into the training programs on Chris Appleford and into a membership for Dadology. And if I don't, then, you know, can't pay the rent, can't put food on the table, um, can't buy clothes for my kid, you know, all those sorts of things. So when, when you give yourself some urgency and some deadlines, shit starts to happen, you know. When you don't do that, you tend to kind of drift along. And that's what's happened with that ology up until this point. And so finally... If there was someone who was looking at, at your career path as, as something that they'd potentially want to emulate or, or go down a similar path, is there any sort of one piece of advice that you'd have for them uh, that you'd think would be most beneficial? If, if someone was to come to you at, say, age 17 or 18, what do you think the best thing that they could have said to you would have been? Oh, gee, great question. Um, I, guess, I guess a piece of advice that I would give them is don't be afraid of change. If you, if you go down a particular path and you're not enjoying it, change. Look at what you're doing. Assess it. Is this what I like to do? Yes or no? If it's no, how can I change? And make it happen. Because we live once. We're at work for, depending on what you do and who you work, work for, you know, let's say the average Joe, you're at work eight hours a day. Do you really want to be miserable for eight hours a day, every day? And then you probably bring that misery home for a few hours as well. And what? who knows what that turns itself into. So it's okay to, it's okay to make changes. Don't, the days of getting a job out of high school and then retiring 50 years later with a gold watch are over. Make changes where you need to. I do, uh, on another website I have called goodbydrinking.com. It's a, it's a website about my decision to quit drinking alcohol. One of the first articles I wrote was about making the decision to quit alcohol and how you should go about it to decide whether, yep, quitting is good for me or quitting is not good for me at this stage. 
And it's about doing a cost-benefit analysis. And you can do a cost-benefit analysis on any aspect of your life. And it's really simple, and it doesn't take that long. You get out a piece of paper, you draw a line down the middle, and you do positives on one side, the benefits, and you do the negatives on the other side, the costs. And you write a list for each. And if one outweighs the other, you look at the two lists, and you, you know, if you want to go really deep into it, you could give each point that you come up with some sort of weighting and add up a score at the end. And if one outweighs the, the other, then the decision's been made. You know, For me, the benefits I got from drinking, um, a little buzz, uh, the social aspect, um, maybe a little bit of you know, enjoyment of the taste of it, were far inferior to all the negatives, the hangovers, the lost productivity, the tiredness, uh, the extra weight you carry, um, the sleepless nights, you know, all of those sorts of things. I just looked at the list and thought, the, the decision's been made, I'm quitting. So you should do that for your career periodically. Like I said, it doesn't take long, it's just a bit of paper, a pen and 10 minutes of your time or 20 minutes, whatever it might be. Make a cost-benefit analysis of whatever situation you happen to be in at the time and let that be your guide. I heard a, uh, a, a great quote the other day. I'm afraid I can't remember exactly who said it, but it was, the illiterate of the 21st century won't be someone who can't read or write. It'll be someone who can't learn, unlearn and relearn. And I think that's a really good point. And I think that's something that, that yeah, you've showed us today. You, you've done so well at that throughout your career is being able to, to move from one thing to the next and make really positive directions with it all. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming on today and, and giving us your insights into, into your journey. Uh, yeah, it's been, it's been great. So thank you very much. Pleasure, Rowan. Thanks for having me.